0: I see the same thing with digital pathology. I see it being disruptive. I see it in many practices is not playing a huge role in their current market segment. The glass does fine. What you're doing is ignoring this other market segment that's on the rise, which is organizations that really can't afford digital pathology but still need to use it, you know, for uh, being able to do AI screening for example, triage. Improve accessibility, especially for smaller practices, where you know it's hard for hard for one person to cover frozen sections and do the adequacies and do all of their directorship responsibilities, and needing a little bit of assistance on the digital end.
1: Welcome to the People of Pathology Podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. So when we talk about digital pathology. It's often referred to as if it were a single entity, but of course we know that it isn't. My guest today is Dr. Bilal Ahmad, and he's the managing director of Spectrum Healthcare Partners Pathology Division. We're going to talk about his career so far and how he is leading his group's digital pathology initiative. They decided to partner with PROSHA, and we'll talk about why that's the case, and we'll hear his thoughts on why digital pathology systems are not one size fits all. All right, here's Dr. Bilal Ahmad. I always like to kind of get the the story of like what what inspired you to become a doctor. So, was there like a particular person or event that influenced you in that way?
0: I joke around about that. So, in my uh, family, immigrant family uh, that came from Pakistan, you, you're you're basically a doctor until otherwise specified. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's just that's just the 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 nature of um, our culture, and and I joke. I said, you know. My, my, my parents gave me significant liberties, and they included on that list also the possibility of engineer and lawyer so doctor, engineer, lawyer, you get to pick between the two okay. um, or the three but no I, I'm, I'm seriously I, I actually really wanted to become a doctor because uh, I, I mean it was multifactorial one is that you know it, it is a position that is regarded in society as being a respectful one, one where you are playing a greater role than just doing a job function. Right. So there's that level of satisfaction, not to say you don't get that in other professions, but that's something that was, um, you know, bred within me at a very early age. And I had a pediatrician that walked the walk. I mean, he was so involved in my life and just, uh, you know, it it, it was such a pleasure to be able to follow up with him illnesses and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, having a poor family and yet him seeing past all of that and treating me like any one of his other patients that were coming from, you know, solid backgrounds and things like that. So Dr. Fitzgerald, this is because of him. <laughs> so that was a huge, um, uh, I think those, those are the factors that probably contributed to, you know, me wanting to become a doctor. Okay.
1: Okay. That's a good mm-hmm. story. I like that. Now then wh- what about pathology? Like how did you get, how did you, what was your first
0: exposure to pathology? Yeah, that was a very roundabout, I would say I probably submitted by, I had to redo my entire application about two weeks before it was due. So I was headed down the pathway of, you know, internal medicine doing again something respectful with internal medicine, like cardiology or GI or nephrology or something like that, where, you know, you have very visible, well-respected doctors out there. And again, there was multiple factors that played a role in me wanting one, you know. Winding up choosing pathology. And I think there was a sentinel event that happened during my sub-internship in internal medicine. And we were taking care of this really sick, young patient. Uh, he was probably in his late teens or early twenties. And at the time I was um, floating on the infectious disease rotation, really couldn't tell what was going on. Uh, he had, you know, these, uh, what we call quotidian fevers, so they would go up, go down, you know, in a wave-like fashion. Uh, he had these rashes, migrating arthralgias, and just very interesting history. Couldn't tell whether it was infectious in origin, rheumatologic, if there was underlying disease. He had some lymph nodes that were coming up, you know. And I remember it was just so much fun for me just trying to figure out what he had. And ultimately, I proposed that, you know, it was stills disease, you know, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, which is, you know, not, not very common and presented it to the multidisciplinary team. So the hospitalists, the infectious disease docs, the rheumatologists, the oncologist, everybody that was kind of following. And they said, yeah, this makes the most sense. Let's go ahead and treat with a trial of steroids. And so they did. So I was on, on a weekend. They started that. I came back and they said, Hey, you know, that, that patient is doing so much better. I mean, the pains are all gone. He's breathing fine. Like his girlfriend is visiting him. It's night and day. And I remember <laughs> this, is, this sounds awful, but it's, it, I remember thinking, wow, he's boring now. Like I, I <laughs> like <laughs> you know, like the most okay. important part of this for me was the disease classification. And, and, and that's kind of, I went from there and I said, wow, maybe I need to be more on the diagnostic end and less on the treatment end because that's the discovery part is more satisfying to me than the treatment and management part. And then you have to kind of figure out between radiology and pathology. And ultimately, I decided I like colors so <laughs>
1: okay. it makes sense so yeah. it's it's like the the problem solving or the that I some think people call it the it puzzle is. solving it's the yeah. puzzle
0: solving and it's the ability for me to interact with a wide range of doctors which you don't get to do in a lot of other specialties but we kind of are almost a focal point you know bridging the gap between all different kinds of specialists and i think that gives me a lot of satisfaction
1: that's a really good point actually that the pathology is connected to a lot of different specialties yes and, yeah. and in a lot of, in a lot of ways is kind of leading the team.
0: I sure. Th- I, I, am sometimes involved in, you know, like phone tag where I'm like, well, I spoke to the oncologist. Don't worry about that. The surgeon I spoke to, they're able to do an excisional biopsy. So they were good there. The hospitals, I'm like, yeah, tell the family this. <laughs> so I like that. It, it's, it's good. Uh, it's a, it's a good feeling to be uh, integrated into the team, even though I'm not patient facing
1: yeah yeah okay that that makes sense that makes sense and now then what about uh hematopathology because that that's your subspecialty how did how did that come about
0: yeah you know we have so many subspecialties in in pathology it's so hard to pick one that's going to be the right fit for you for me, I always enjoyed clinical pathology I enjoyed the stewardship aspect of lab medicine so you know we're not the ones that are running you know all of the Hematology analyzers, we're not checking every single CBC and chemistry value and toxicology. We're we're not doing that, but we do have a a leadership role in uh, making sure that the right test is being performed on the right patient at the right time, right? And so for me, I was really drawn to clinical pathology for that reason. I think that's stewardship. Anatomic pathology is something that grew on me a little bit later, classification of things under the microscope. For me, hematopathology was the best of both worlds. So you know when you look across all the different subspecialties you can do within pathology, for me that was the one where I could keep my skills under the microscope, but then I could still be involved in the clinical lab by virtue of hematology and and still play that function. So for me, you know diagnostics being integrated into a multidisciplinary team is excellent. Um, I also enjoy being you know, a steward of the laboratory, and you, you really don't get the kind of visibility that you would being away from the microscope, as you do in the clinical lab. So being in, involved with the blood bank, you know, triaging massive transfusion reactions, um, and things of that nature. So for me, that was kind of a very natural fit. Um, that That's one reason. And number two is my attending and mentor, Dr. Herman Pihan. is just a, just a, fascinating human being, one of the most intelligent people I've ever met. Um, so he has always strongly advocated for me. Uh, he made my residency, uh, such a beautiful learning experience. Fascinating. I mean, he's one of those guys where, you know, it'll be Friday night, and he'll be talking eight o'clock, nine o'clock. And I there's absolutely no reason to want to go out in the town because he's just that captivating. So huge, huge pivotal role in my life.
1: Okay. I understand yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Having, having a mentor like that oh, is yeah. very important. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. And I've heard, heard that before about Heme path, how it's kind of, like you said, the best of both worlds. Mm-hmm. That's why a lot of people pick it. Okay. Yeah. Now you're managing director uh, of the spectrum healthcare partners, pathology yes. division. Mm-hmm. Okay. So take me from, I guess we kind of ended off in fellowship and take me from that to where you are now. How did that happen?
0: Oh, sure. Yeah. So, um, I was out in practice after I finished my fellowship in, um, a small town called Lawrence, Massachusetts in, in, in uh, just about 30, 30, miles north of Boston. Now I'm awful with geography. So I might, I might confabulate some mileage, hour numbers <laughs> and things like that. But, uh, yeah, it was a nice little town. It was a wonderful hospital to get started out in. It was a two to three person practice. So you're kind of seeing everything, which was great for me. I was able to show my uh, partner, you know, cases, very interesting cases, develop that confidence, that skill set. And after a few years, I realized I wanted more. I wanted to be part of a much larger health system, laboratory network where I could really kind of stretch my wings and my creative drives. So after that, I left to join a practice in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And it was amazing. It was an amazing opportunity we were in super growth phase, you know, we were an independent practice, um, and we were able to flex based on the needs of the patient populations and the need of the oncologist, Uh, meaning that, you know, by having ownership of the laboratory, we could introduce new assays faster. Mm -hmm. So, you know, things like HER2, where there was some, you know, issues with the turnaround time, I said, hey, let me just build a fish lab, you know, (laughs) why don't we just do that? So I learned how to interpret and uh, do fish through you know neogenomics, which offers TCPC split and I said, okay, I think it's time for me to do this a- at home and so partnered with uh, some much smarter people than me in this area uh, was uh, you know got to touch base with Bob Gasparini learned about the field in neogenomics got a bunch of really smart technologists together to build and validate a platform where, we were offering 24 to 48 hours on her two fish turnaround time. I mean, that was crazy, right? (laughs) And this was six years ago, six years ago, we were doing things like rapid hybridization. We had a bio view. So we were doing computer assisted analysis, you know, with a second check by a tech. So it was, it was a huge, huge uh, opportunity for us to improve, you know, patient satisfaction and turnaround time to treatment and things like that. So, those those that was highly satisfying for me circumstances changed changed towards the end of the year where the hospital system went through consolidation of their services and things like that less uh, autonomy and independence for me and so uh, i said okay third time's the charm let's let's see what's out there and i had the extreme privilege of being able to join this organization which is a very unique you know, multidisciplinary, multi-specialty physician-owned groups. We have about, I, I can't remember, maybe about 300 or 300-plus 300 physicians, you know, across multiple specialties. So pathology is one of them. It's one of the smaller ones, actually. Uh, we also have anesthesiology, radiology, uh, radiation oncology, orthopedics, and, and some other services as well. And it's been really good in terms of contract negotiation with multiple healthcare institutions. Um, so depending on the division, the specialty, you know, they'll be covering large parts of Maine and New Hampshire and we overlap and, but don't necessarily cover all of the same institutions. But what's nice is we all have that same company representation, you know, and, and that's, that's supremely important to us being independent providers, providing high quality, low cost services to our patient population you know, which is the oldest in the country. Uh, if you look at the statistics in terms of age oh. and so, yeah, so, okay. so things like, you know, you know, cancer incidence, disease detection and things like that are rising. And so this is a place that, you know, you want to be a place where you want to start, uh, to really recruit talent from all across the country. And, uh, it's, it's been a challenge because, you know, it's not a, it's not a, great state in terms of our reimbursement and we'll talk about this later when we get into digital pathology but for me i thought i saw this as an opportunity for uh you know changing things up Mm -hmm. and um you know growing the practice having a new vision one that's focused on sustainability of the enterprise during this significant period of declines in our reimbursement you know i wanted to Execute strategies where we can start to generate revenue, you know, and pass that forward to all of our advanced practice practitioners or, you know, our, our, our technologists and all of those folks who we are so heavily reliant on, you know, uh, to get to the glass slide. I mean, you know, people talk about pathologist shortage. I mean, there's a there's a massive shortage and I think not enough attention being paid to all the folks behind the scenes. And in order to do that and recruit and retain those individuals, we have to start thinking differently about, you know, how our business is currently structured and what we need to do um, moving forward to be able to retain that. So for all those reasons, I felt like, you know, this is a good opportunity for me to put on the managing director hat <laughs> and, and, and hopefully steer the ship in the right direction. You know, I mean, we may not get exactly what we want to, but if I can get in the right direction, I'll be, I'll be happy with that.
1: This is the people of pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Bilal Ahmad. We'll be right back. If you're trying to understand the ever-changing world of digital pathology and image analysis, there's a new course that can help you. Pathology 101 for tissue image analysis. Now, this course was created by Dr. Alexandra Zhurov, who you might remember from episode 53 of this podcast. She also writes the Digital Pathology Place blog and hosts the Digital Pathology podcast. Pathology 101 for Tissue Image Analysis aims to bridge the gap between computer science and pathology and explains some of the complicated concepts in image analysis. You can sign up for this course by following the link in the show notes. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists like us for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. And now back to Dr. Bilal Ahmad on the People of Pathology podcast. Part of this direction that you're trying to steer the ship is you're you're uh, leading the digital pathology initiative, which right. from from what you've been saying, it sounds like you know even earlier in your career this was kind of an interest to you, digital and computational pathology as it was coming out. You were talking about her two testing in ER, so why why do you think like now especially why why is this a priority for you?
0: Yeah, so yeah, I've I've been using the technology uh, a very long time. Um, outside of the you know primary diagnostic space, so on ancillary testing, so things like doing TCPC fish, flow cytometry, digitally um, doing IHC interpretation, some with assist, some without assist, but always hesitating <laughs> to go completely primary uh, for several reasons. Um, one was I was just hearing about you know some of the things happening with radiology, cases getting outsourced and possibly lost to the international market. I was actually opposed to a lot of the technology, scanner technologies, you know, image management solutions because of that fear of loss of control. And I would say that I had to do a hard pivot on that philosophy during the pandemic. So if you asked me in 2019 how I feel about digital pathology, I would have waved my hands and said, "Uh, it's not for us, it's not for me, I don't see any utility. Come the pandemic, come all of these significant losses of of talent you know people we knew there was going to be a cliff uh come 2020 a retirement cliff with the pathologists right what the pandemic did was it amplified that so folks that were going to retire in 10 5 10 years were becoming part-time or retiring now Um, you know we were having technology shortage which created a lot of volatility in the way the cases were being distributed so some days you would get you know, 300, 400 slides. And another day you'd get 1500 slides, you know? And so that, you know, that has contributed to significant burnout, fatigue, moral injury, whatever you want to call it. And it's just a vicious cycle, right? And so what happens is the few folks that are remaining, they can't tolerate it. So now they go part-time or retire. And the last few folks that are remaining, they can't, you know, so it's, this is what we're detecting, For me, digital pathology, it was kind of like an aha moment. And I I see this as an opportunity to really fix a lot of the current issues that we have and realize benefits that we probably don't even recognize yet. There's a great paper on disruptive technologies Um, I'd have to send you, but it talks about the hard drive revolution. (laughs) You know, when things used to be on tape and how companies that were you know, trying to push new disk drive solutions and things like that, you know, it, it, it wasn't sexy. It wasn't what the mar- what the market needed at the time, but the ones that stayed invested in it and improved those technologies were the ones that didn't go under, that did not go bankrupt, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I see the same thing with digital pathology. I see it being disruptive. I see it in many practices as not playing a huge role in their current market segment. The glass does fine. What you're doing is ignoring this, other market segment that's on the rise, which is organizations that really can't afford digital pathology, but still need to use it, you know, for uh, being able to do AI screening, for example, triage, improve accessibility, especially for smaller practices where, you know, it's hard for hard for one person to cover frozen sections and do the adequacies and do all of their directorship responsibilities and needing a little bit of assistance on the digital end. I, I think that market hasn't completely evolved yet, but that's that's the revolution that I want to lead. So those are the two things. And so in terms of our immediate needs, you know, I talk about decentralizing and democratizing pathology. And so so what does that mean? So we are actually, uh, you know, a 25-person group across. Uh, we 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 staff three significant healthcare institutions across New Hampshire and Maine, and we also provide pathology services for um, uh, non-hospital-based outpatient clinics through some of our partner reference laboratories. What that does is it creates a significant geographic barrier. In our flagship hospital, Maine Medical Center, which is where I am, we you know we 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 fully staffed have about 12 pathologists plus. Uh, In some of the hospitals, we basically have a (laughs) one-person. It's a one-person unit. So we have a lot of transfer of humans and slides across the system to get, you know, second opinion or a consult. And that creates a significant barrier, right? So pathologists that, you know, would otherwise show a case to a colleague next door may not do so because of that barrier. Um, They also may not do so because it has to be sent to a different institution and accessioned in a different way. If we were to start digitizing at least a subset of these cases across all institutions, we could have a single cloud uh, within which, you know, our experts can just jump in and start reviewing those cases. You know, and I think, you know, that is the trend that we're headed in. You know, we we have twenty five pathologists, but we function as kind of almost siloed units. Um, So, by digitizing, I think we're going to be able to really start to have an actual twenty five pathologists that can access cases, and not two or one or twelve or ten, depending on where the case came from.
1: And I think a lot of the like argument for digital pathology is the the access. Uh, aspect like you just mentioned like you can pretty much work from anywhere and work mm-hmm. on cases from like, like you said outside of your facility and then you know you're you're covering a large geographical area so this is they could be cases from pretty far away mm-hmm. that, that seems like the big argument for digital pathology like you mentioned the pandemic a little a little earlier and that was kind of almost like a test case for that because people had to work from home or, or off-site at least that's right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And and during the pandemic, you know, we, we had uh, many of our pathologists had to take anywhere from a few days to a few weeks, some that are still recovering actually right, uh, chronic phase. So we've had to alter, you know, our work schedules to accommodate being able to work from home somewhat or have people pitch in that that's been huge uh, for us. And, and, you know, the the bottom line is we're we're not going to fill this gap uh, in pathologist shortage anytime soon. So, for our geography, especially in the Northeast, where you know it's not as appealing as let's say California, <laughs> parts of California where it's sunny all the time, or even Texas um, where the cost of living is 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 pretty decent. It's hard to recruit in the Northeast. What I'm hoping to do is fill that gap by having. Uh, Remote consultants and remote uh, pathologists for sign out. Uh, I think that's going to significantly diminish our burden in getting through cases. Uh, So, remote recruitment is something that we are very interested in as well. I mentioned our reimbursement being very low. We're actually second to last to West Virginia on our CMS reimbursement, and you're competing with a very, you know, very contracted labor force it's going to be hard to have those individuals move all the way here. It's probably worthwhile to adopt a radiology model where you have some radiologists that are working for institutions primarily, but then they do reads for other institutions that are in a geography that's sometimes 500,000 miles away. So that's something that we're also looking forward to. Um, And I think that is, I think that's a direction that we're going to, Um, see more and more for most practices uh, where you have a new generation coming out with significant debt that has work-life balance as a priority that wants to maybe not necessarily move away from family living situations. You know, it's getting harder and harder to afford a house, even where we live in Maine for all those reasons. It's just more appealing to, you know, get these cases digitized and use you know, the bright minds of these folks that um, don't need to move here to provide us those services.
1: Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. So then now you're using uh, Prosha and the concentric DX system yes. to, to mm-hmm. do all of this. That's right. right so, so tell me about how did you get involved with Prosha?
0: My uh, practice director, Carrie Seibel, she actually led the effort on kind of looking across the board at scanners, software vendors, um, you know, image management solutions, AI. We just kind of just looked at everything, talked to um, different practices, uh, and we wound up actually uh, trialing or getting demos for several different systems, um, many of which you probably recognize, you know, like and Roche and Philips and, and all of these companies, FDA-approved, non-FDA-approved solutions. With ProSHA, uh, it was just a good fit for us. It was a Goldilocks program, There's no one size fits all is I think something that pathology groups have a difficult time understanding is they'll hear like, we have to go with the solution. They're well-recognized. Well, what's the problem you're trying to solve? You know, what, what is it that you actually need? And for us, ProShop provides us with what we actually need, which is basically a digital microscope that provides us with a queue of cases uh, that are very easy to access through their software and has a overall neat, tidy interface that will appeal to different generations of pathologists. So th- those are the things that, you know, I look at, I look at the stakeholders involved uh, in my group, the folks that I need buy-in from, the generational differences, the the differences in work life, what their expectations are for um, getting these digitized. Uh, And for us, that is just what worked. So no fancy, you know, report building capabilities or being able to do any hosting for us or things like that. And that's exactly what we wanted. We just wanted uh, what they provided through their platform, which I think is best in breed. And then we would provide the best in breed of our own other solutions, like the cloud infrastructure, which they've actually helped us to develop, uh, even though that's not something that they own.
1: Okay. What about like the remote uh, aspect of it, working remotely? is that Would that play a role also in, in this decision?
0: Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. So we, we wanted to, because of that um, interface that I was talking about, I want folks when they're at home or they're on vacation to be able to access the the cases that they need without lag, uh, without having any kind of hassle, which are inherent in some of these other companies because it's a lot of bells and whistles and, uh, you know, the ease of access, you know, kind of goes away. So that was huge for us. So as our pathologists uh, go part-time or even retire, semi-retire, you know, I I tell them I'm I'm always going to be using your eyeballs. (laughs) So this is the way we do it. And this is the platform that I've, will give you the most ease and comfort to be able to access it from your couch.
1: Okay. I see that. That makes sense. Yeah. Now I I imagine, you know, when you invest in a system like this, you've got to be looking for not only your needs now, but potentially what your needs could be in the future. I mean, are there there parts of the concentric system that you thought, you know, we could grow with this, if if that makes sense?
0: That does make sense. So scalability uh, and iterative process is kind of what our mantra is I've seen, uh, see, I'm not, I'm not a terribly smart guy, but I know a lot of smart people. So <laughs> I know exactly who I need to reach okay. out to, to learn, uh, learn from other people's mistakes. Uh, I, I try to do a good job with that. And uh, a lot of colleagues, very excited, just as excited as, as I am, who spent the capital, did the things and wound up using it, the system that they have at a small fraction of what it, the intended use was. And so learning from those mistakes, you know, we thought, God, what is what is a risk mitigation strategy we can use to dip our feet into this and work on something that's good for now, but that could be scaled up rapidly. So we sort of did it in a backwards approach. So most people start with the scanner. They want the best in breed scanner, high throughput, all these things. Well, none of those things really matter unless you have the 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 network behind it, the software behind it, the stuff that you're actually going to interact with, right? So the pathologists aren't interacting with the scanner they are interacting with their mouse and keyboard or their iPad or touch device um, to do this. So we spent a significant amount of time trying to figure out what our networking needs were gonna be, our cloud-based strategy. We're using something called an Azure Kubernetes service um, to be able to load balance very large image files We spent months just building that part out and we don't even have a scanner yet. So this is a strategy of kind of delayed differentiation where we want to build out the software uh, component, the network component as much as we can, and then decide on what we're going to use for our scanner. So uh, we've completed that phase. We're now entering a phase where we're looking at scanners across the board, see how it plugs into our system, what doesn't work, what works, and that is what's going to allow for us to really kick this up 10x 100x when you start with scanners and you go the other way around it's a lot harder um, to scale up in that way so the way we're trying to do it um we'll be able to test this out in a single institution it's a it's a confined hospital network that has its own laboratory and if it goes really well well we can spend another five ten million dollars through institutional money and uh Have them jump onto our network, which has been, you know, fully tested and validated and get scanners going all across the board. That skill ability is inherent to our strategy. And um, it's, it's going to be exciting this the end of this year. We're hoping to be fully validated with that with that one institution. And then the next couple of years look to involve some of the larger institutions we work with.
1: Okay, that that sounds like an exciting project. Then the yeah. the, the uh, ability to, to grow like that, <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm sure. If it sure. doesn't, I've got other ideas.
1: <laughs> oh, all right. Uh, so then, the the last thing I wanted to talk with you about, yeah. um, as far as like, I mean, because we've been hearing about digital pathology for a long time, and everybody says, you know, this is the future of pathology, and some people say, you know, the future is now, but there's not widespread use of it yet. And I'm curious, your thoughts about that. Like, what do you think it's going to take to get widespread use of digital pathology?
0: Yeah, you know, it's, we talk about digital pathology like it's this homogeneous entity, and it's not. I mean, I tell okay. people, I say, you know, when you talk about digital pathology to the digital pathology experts, it's like telling a pathologist that they just made a cancer diagnosis. It's like, Well, where was the cancer, you know, (laughs) like, Mm -hmm. what was the subtype? What was the grade? What was the stage? Like, that's how we think digital pathology is a very heterogeneous thing. You've got lots of you've got live microscopy, you've got, you know, low throughput scanners, high throughput scanners, you've got cloud-based on-prem structures. So I think what, what folks, what practices need to do is define their problem. And before they jump to a solution. Stop with the vendors. Stop with the software. Don't do any of that stuff. Yeah, I agree. Digital is the future of pathology, but that's too vague. Uh, I, I think what you what pathol what I recommend to pathology groups, whether it's a one or two person practice or a three hundred person pathology practice across the country, is to define their current state and what they what they hope for their future ideal state to be. Something that they may never reach, but a direction they want to go to. When you define that problem properly, that will allow for you to select the appropriate software for you. So Concentric is excellent for us. There are other software systems that would be not great for us because let's say that there's a a software that has reporting tools built into it and they will interface with the LIS. Well, what if you have nine LISs? What if you have 12 of them? What if you have just two? You know, what would work in that situation for us? We decided it's actually a bigger lift to integrate into all those LISs and for us to simply sign out in those interface in those different systems and just use the concentric as our, as our robust digital microscope and not a report writing system. So there's no one size fits all. I think that's kind of what I'm getting to as people realize that there is no one size fits all. That's when you're going to start to have massive adoption. The other thing is you have to, the, the the advice that I give folks is stop thinking about the ROI as being what are going to be the reimbursements for digital pathology. That That is not going to make your ROI. That is, that is not what you want to focus on. What you want to focus on is how is this going to improve recruitment and retention? Okay. How is this going to improve your productivity? So based on your case mix, if you're doing maybe 12,000 RVUs, well, if it was digitized and you know some of it was pre-screened, like let's say you use some kind of prostate AI algorithm that improves your thir- you know efficiency thirty-five percent, well maybe your productivity goes up to fourteen thousand, fifteen thousand, you know. So yeah, there's all this chatter about the CPT codes and things like that. And I think it's wonderful. I think the CAP has done an amazing job. I, I'm a huge advocate for the CAP. I just joined the House of Delegates, uh, rejoin the House of Delegates. It's a big win. It provides legitimacy, but I, I worry that people are focusing on waiting on those reimbursements before deciding to take that leap. And, and I think you have to do it beforehand. Hopefully I answered that question.
1: <laughs> no, you did. That's, a, yeah. that's an interesting perspective. I, I like that. I appreciate yeah. you sharing that. Uh, Dr. Ahmad, this has been a really interesting conversation. I appreciate uh, getting to know you a little bit more and getting to learn a, about uh, Spectrum Healthcare Partners and how they're working with Prosha. Uh, and your kind of viewpoint for the future. This has been great. So uh, Dr. Bilal Ahmad, thank you very much.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Dennis.
1: If you're looking for another episode of the People of Pathology podcast to check out after this one, here's a clip from my interview with Dr. Joseph Anderson, who is the host of Digital Pathology Today. Do you think that digital pathology will become widely used or widely adopted in the near future?
2: I think that's... An interesting question, because on the one hand, I think it's inevitable. And we all kind of have just this sense that it is inevitable. I mean, why wouldn't we go digital, you know? But on the other hand, it is costly and it is time consuming. And maybe the workflows are not intuitive, particularly to pathologists who have been doing things the old way. And then I think, you know, one, one thing that has come out of the podcast is, you know, just the comparison to pathology in radiology, which might not be entirely obvious to everybody, but in pathology going digital, uh, the process adds expense because you're adding more steps, right? You're taking the glass slide that you would have immediately looked at under the microscope and you're adding another step with expensive scanners and monitors and displays, you know, another day technician time. So you're adding more steps, you're making it more expensive compared to radiology where you know, the image, the digitized image is the true image and printing it out on film is adding more steps. So when radiology went digital, they actually eliminated steps and potentially made it cheaper and Mm -hmm. faster. You know, so I think there is kind of this barrier to overcome, but I think inevitably we're going to get there.
1: You can hear the rest of my conversation with Dr. Joseph Anderson in episode 57. All right. Great. Big thanks to Dr. Bilal Ahmad. This was another fascinating episode for me, I especially like his perspective on choosing a digital pathology system, you know, rather than going with the system that's the most popular or has the most bells and whistles to really decide what your needs are for a digital system and then finding the product that fits those needs the best. I also liked his ideas about decentralizing and democratizing pathology. So a lot of interesting things to think about from this one. As always, I'll have links in the show notes to everything that we talked about today. Don't forget, you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at People of Path, or just connect with me on LinkedIn. And just a shout out to a few listeners here, I wanna say hello to Evelyn, who's been a longtime listener, and thank you very much for that, and new listener, Macy. So welcome, and thanks for following the show. Also, I've noticed quite a few new listeners from Brazil recently which I think is really cool. So if you're one of those people, please reach out to me. I want to hear from you and I appreciate your support. Thanks to all of you for sharing the show with others and together let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care and well-being. You can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network. And while you're there, check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Dennis Strank. And I'll talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.